Well, good morning to you. I kind of wish Nathan and Catherine would do something less emotional, a little more boring right before I get up and preach, because I had to kind of get myself together. That was was really powerful. It's good to see you all this morning. And we are this year really spurring and challenging. We're we're really trying to stretch ourselves as Christians. And, And this is sort of like we're all on a journey and we're saying, come on, let's pick up the pace. Because our goal in ministry this year is that all of us would serve Christ would pursue Him with greater diligence, with greater fervency than we ever had before. We're calling it the all-in challenge. And it's four specific challenges, really. If you need more information, there's a table to your right as you go out with all the, all the info you need. You can always call and ask any questions you might have. But you know, in the midst of that, we know there are some, some things in our lives that hold us back from giving ourselves fully to Christ. It's easy to become a Christian. It's easy to get saved because it's free of charge. Jesus has already done all the work. But it's hard to follow Jesus. It really is. And we want you to experience all of that. And we know that deep down inside, deep in our hearts, we all have other things that compete for our allegiance, for our obedience, and we call those idols. And and our, our definition of an idol is, an idol is anything that demands your complete obedience and allegiance. Anything in your life other than God that you count on for your security and your identity and your purpose and your happiness in life. Basically, anything that if you think in your mind, oh man, if that ever goes away, I don't know if I can make it. I don't know if life will be worth living. If I lost my physical health, I don't know if I could go on. If, I, if all my income dried up and I, I suddenly was struggling just to make it, I don't know if I could go on. Anything like that in your life is an idol. And believe it or not, that includes family. We're going to be talking over the next several weeks about what I would consider the most prevalent idols in American culture, all of which, uh, every single one of which the scriptures address. Um, But out of all the topics we're going to talk about, all of them are going to be painful and difficult. I hope you're praying for me that I would pursue these with wisdom. But I think this one is the hardest one because I think in, in our heart of hearts, we say deep down inside, how could my love of my family ever be a problem? How is it possible for me to love my family too much? What I'm going to say to you right here at the beginning is, You might be saying in your mind, okay, Jeff, I can see where if I'm giving too much of myself to my family, not enough to God, that hurts me. I'm not experiencing the abundance that Christ wants me to have. But if it's good for my family, I'll make that trade. I'll suffer and maybe not experience all the joy that I'm supposed to, but if it blesses my family, then I'll I'll do that. But I'm here to tell you right from the beginning that when you make your family into an idol, when you make your family into an ultimate good, you're not actually blessing them at all. You're actually hurting them, and we're going to get to that by the end of this message. Let me just begin before we get into the Word, because we're, we're in Matthew 10, 34 through 39, and um, this is a really difficult passage. This is uh, something that if you've never read the Bible before, you're going to hear this and go, wait, Jesus really said that? Yeah, He did. Um, but before we get into that, I just need to establish right off the top, for those of you that don't know, the Bible is very pro-family. In fact, any convictions that you and I as Christians have about the importance of family comes from God's Word. If you've read the Bible before, you're reading the Bible along with us this year, you probably noticed that in the first few pages of the Bible, one of the first things God ever does is He creates a man and He creates a woman. He says, you guys come together, make children, create a family. That's hundreds of years before there's anything even resembling a church. That's hundreds of years before there's anything resembling a state. You see what the priority is of God. Family is very important to Him. When you get into the book of Exodus, second book of the Bible, the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20, number five, commandment number five is honor your father and mother. And in fact, it's the only one of the ten that has a promise attached to it. 
Israel is just beginning to form itself as a nation, and God says, you're not going to last in this, in this land that I'm giving you unless children honor their parents, because that's how important family is to the structure of a society. And the seventh commandment is don't commit adultery. God says, don't, don't steal somebody else's spouse. Don't tear somebody's family up and tear your family up by falling in love with someone who's not your spouse. And both of those commandments in ancient Israel were punishable by death. That's how seriously they took this stuff. Now you move forward several centuries, Jesus comes along at a time in which Jewish men had begun to believe that it was fine to divorce your wife for any purpose whatsoever. So essentially they were saying, okay, I'm not going to break God's law. I'm not going to cheat on my wife. I'll just get rid of her because I want somebody else more. And, and you probably know this, but in those days, women didn't have the same right. Now, ladies, I know it's hard for you to imagine that when men are in charge and they can make the rules that they would make something that unfair, but that's the way it was. And Jesus, and they said, hey, Jesus, what do you think about this whole divorce thing? And he said, I'll tell you what I think. I think that if you're married to somebody, you stay with that person. If you're married to a woman uh, and you married this wife in your youth, you stick with her until you die. That's the way it works. And then a generation later, Paul comes along and writes Ephesians 5 in which he says to men, not only do you need to stick with your wife, you need to love her enough that your love for her is comparable to the love of Jesus who laid down his life for his bride, the church. So people ought to look at you and see all the ways that you're sacrificing yourself in order to bless your wife in order so that you're not saying, okay, woman, you do for me what I need. No, you are laying down your life because she is your bride and you are, you are making her into, you are helping build her up into the woman God created her to be. Meanwhile, Paul says to women, wives, you need to submit yourself to your husband. You're not in competition with him. You are to put him first. You're, that relationship comes ahead of your own needs and wants and desires. And so as Western civilization began to form itself on the backbone of Christianity, one of the things that separated Western civilization from uh, society at large and that made the culture we grew up in so lasting and so strong is that overwhelmingly they adopted, our forefathers adopted these biblical principles for family and said, okay, that's what family is supposed to be. That's how important family is. And you could look around and go, hey man, we don't even come close to living up to that. And I agree with you, but we at least aspire to it. That is our standard. That is our dream. And, and all that started to change about 50 years ago. For those of you that are my age and older, you, you know, or you remember the sexual revolution took hold in our country in the late 1960s, and all of a sudden, you, there was all this literature, there was all this talk on TV, radio, in, in literature, saying the old ways are oppressive, the, the old standards uh, kept people held down, they kept people from experiencing all that, that they were created to experience, and so the only way to really have happiness and joy and fulfillment in life is to throw off those old yokes, those, those old mores, and just chase after sexual expression however you see fit. Whatever your desires tell you to do, go out and get it. And we've seen over the last 50 years the awful things that has produced. And as the, as the evangelical church began to see the divorce rate skyrocket, as the, as the church began to see uh, unwanted children and, and teenage pregnancies and pregnancies outside marriage and, and uh, families falling apart and, and, and all the depression and discouragement and loneliness that comes when there's, when there's unhindered sexual expression, when it's outside of what God created it for, the evangelical church's response was, well, we need to fight for the family. 
And so, uh, especially starting in the 80s, and from the 80s on, there was this, there was this strong drive that we are, going to, we are going to be known as the people that fight for the family, that stand up for the family in our, in our legislative efforts, in our preaching, in our ministry. And so if you go from the 1980s on, if you go to an evangelical church, you're likely to hear lots and lots of stuff about the family. The whole ministry is structured around strengthening families. And I think we've had the best of intentions, but I, I'm going to tell you something that might surprise you. I think our efforts have actually hurt families more than helped them because they've drawn us away from God. They, we have made the family into something it was never created to be. We have put it into a place of ultimate importance. And there's a number of ways in which that's been harmful to us, harmful to our witness, and actually even harmful to our families. And I'm going to talk about that today. But first, let's look at what Jesus says. This is going to surprise you if you haven't heard it before. This is actually in the midst of a moment when Jesus is taking his 12 disciples, these 12 ordinarily, or ordinary guys, he's sending them out to preach the gospel on their own for the very first time. And he's giving them instructions. So all of chapter 10 is his instructions. And then he says in verse 34, Do not think that I have come to bring peace on the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Those are tough words. Now, can you imagine if this week I told Nathan, hey, let's put this statement on our church website so that anybody who's checking out our church will see that uh, our whole goal in ministry is to set fathers against sons and daughters against moms. What do you think of that idea? Or what if, what if we commission a big sign that will be posted right outside our front door that says, First Baptist Church, tearing families apart since 1891? <laughs> or what if every time someone joins our church, I take them aside and I say, listen, if I ever get one hint that you love your family as much as God, I will personally run you out of this church. Y'all would think I had lost my mind. You'd probably fire me. And yet what Jesus said in his time was even more shocking than that. Because believe it or not, first century Judaism was even more pro-family than 21st century evangelical Christianity. And and I'll prove it to you. Today, I think just about anybody in this room, maybe there are a few exceptions, but almost all of us, if you hear a story of a teenager you know who's just sort of slightly rebelling against her parents, you know, she comes home with purple hair, or she goes out and gets a tattoo and her mom freaks out, or, or the, the son goes off to college and he chooses a career field that the parents are like, what are you doing? When we hear stories like that, we don't go hunt that kid down and slap him around. We say, you know, that's kids. They've got to choose their own path. But in the first century, in the Jewish culture, You surrendered your identity to your family. And if you ever thought that something you were about to do or say was going to bring disgrace or harm or embarrassment to your parents, your siblings, your aunts and uncles, you would sooner die than do that. And then Jesus comes along and says, yeah, but you have to to walk away from them to follow me. Why would he say that? See, Jesus knew, Jesus knew, and again, Remember, the Scripture is very pro-family. God wants us to love our families. Our families are a gift from Him. But He knew, you have to choose me above them. 
That's the only way this works. Well, why? Why is that? What's so bad about making your family into an ultimate good? Let me tell you three things that I see in the Scriptures. Number one, idolatry of family keeps us from obeying God. It keeps us from obeying God. Now again, I I gave you the context. Jesus is giving this command in the context of sending out his disciples to preach. Again, these are ordinary guys. They've never been educated in theology. Um, They've never been trained to preach. All they've done, they've just walked around watching Jesus. And now he says, okay, you go and do this too. And so these are fishermen. These These are blue collar guys. These are merchants. They're ordinary people. And Jesus knows they're going to start hearing. If they haven't already, they're going to start hearing from home. They're going to start hearing, hey, Bartholomew, you know your mom can't show her face in the synagogue, and now you're out pretending to be a preacher? You're making things worse. Hey, Thomas, you know that uh, your kids are having to beg for their daily lunch because you're not doing your job anymore, and now I hear you think you're a preacher? What, what, what's going through your brain? And so Jesus is telling them, I know, I know, because this is what I'm experiencing. I know what you're about to experience, so you better choose are you going to be the perfect family man, do everything your family wants you and expects you to do? Or are you going to obey me? Because you can't do both. See, we never really think about the disciples' families, do we? We never really think about the fact that when Peter dropped his nets, when Jesus had just given him the best catch of his life, and followed Jesus that day, and we all say, man, what devotion. But I wonder, is that how his wife felt? Because we know Peter was married. As Jesus has talked about, talks about Jesus healing his mother-in-law. I don't know anybody who has a mother-in-law that doesn't also have a wife, right? I mean, why would you? No, no offense. But um, we know Peter was married. So who's providing for his family when he's out following Jesus? We know that by the time Paul writes 1 Corinthians 9, he mentions the wives of the apostles. So what about Matthew's family? I mean, Matthew had a lucrative job as a tax collector. If he had a wife and children when he met Jesus, I'm sure they were used to a particular standard of affluence. I'm sure they traded in their camel for a brand new camel every year, right? I want that 2019 camel, right? And now, suddenly, they've got nothing. They go from upper middle class to poverty level overnight because Matthew chose to follow Jesus. We know that James and John worked for their dad, Zebedee. Zebedee, I'm sure, like most of us men, thought to himself, I'm going to build a business that's going to be so strong. My boys and then my grandkids and great-grandkids, they'll be provided for. And then his sons walk away from all that. And if this was modern times, picture old Zebedee walking up with a paintbrush where the, the sign says Zebedee and Sons Fishing Company and just painting over the and sons part and thinking, I don't know what I'm doing. You know, we, we hear stories about people today who are of other faiths and someone shares the gospel with them and they come to know Christ and then they find, their families find out and there's this big family intervention where the family says, listen, if you get baptized, you don't come home. If you get baptized, you're not my child anymore. And they go through it anyway. There's an old story about a young man in the Middle Ages in Italy whose dad was a wealthy merchant And this young man became very devout in his early 20s and began to share his goods with the poor. And anytime he'd meet someone who had less than him, he would would bless them in some way. He was just giving away his father's fortune. His dad actually took him to court, sued him to make him stop giving away the money. 
And so in, in the middle of court, this is a true story, the son took off all his clothes and handed them to his dad and said, listen, I don't need anything of yours anymore. It's, I'm giving it all back to you because from this day forward, I'm serving my heavenly father, not you. And that man we know today is Francis of Assisi. And that was the beginning of his ministry that really changed the world. And most of us would hear stories like that and we'd say, yeah, but that's not me. I mean, my family is all on board with me serving God. I didn't have to, I didn't have to go against my parents. I didn't have to go against my spouse. I don't have to go against my children. They, they want me to serve God. Well, good for you. And yet, even so, I would say, idolatry of a family, even a Christian family, can still cause you to disobey God. Over 10 years ago, I was pastor of another church in another town, and there was a young family that had started going to my church. Um, they weren't members yet, and, and the wife had cancer, and in the course of time, she passed away. Tragically died with two young kids, and I remember doing the funeral, and I remember saying to myself, you know, I need to really keep up with this dad. He's all on his own. And after the funeral, they never came back to our church. And I, I would keep up with them and I'd say, hey, we really miss you. And he'd say, yeah, we miss you too. And, and we're going to come back someday. But they never did. And it was always, it was always the same thing. It's like, yeah, we're, we're going to come back. But it was a beautiful weekend and, and we've got some jet skis. So I just took the kids out to the lake. Um, or, you know, I've never taken the kids to Disney World, so we drove to Florida, and then while we were there, we decided to stay an extra week and, and went to Universal, and, um, or, you know, my kids hadn't seen their grandparents in a while, so we went out of town and saw them, or they've never met their Aunt Judy, and she lives in Iowa, so we drove up there, and, and all along, it was obvious, his whole thing was, I'm the only parent they have left, so I am going to spend every spare moment I have making sure they know that I love them, and, and uh, any of us can say, well, good for him. And yet, and yet eternally speaking, if his kids know that he loves them, but they don't know that God loves them, he's failed. If his kids know that he loves them, but they don't know that he loves Jesus, then he hasn't done his job as a dad. And, and you might say to me, well, wait, Jeff, are you saying that, that going to church is what it means to be a Christian? No, I'm not. We come to church not to show that we're good Christians. We go to church because we need to be equipped to live a Christian life. But... You look in the scriptures and there is no version of following Jesus with all your heart that doesn't include being an active, vital member of a local body of believers. And I also know that with our crazy schedules, and we got all these, I mean, we're working hard and we've got hobbies and we've got responsibilities at home and we've got stuff that we have to do with our kids and it's always time with God and it's always opportunities to serve Him that get cut. Oh, well, I wish I could do that, but you know, got this baseball tournament this week. Yeah, but you know, uh, my work needed me. It's always time with the Lord that gets cut. And I'm sure that on the flip side, some of you could say to me, you know, I agree with everything you're saying because my family is my mission field. And I would say to that, absolutely, amen, good on you, because you are your family's first pastor for sure. And you have a better opportunity to reach them with the gospel than I do because you're with them all the time. But I also say that if your family is your only mission field, you're not fulfilling God's purpose in your life. Peter did not stand in that boat and say to Jesus, oh, you want to teach me to fish for people? Well, I've got a mother and a mother-in-law and a wife and children, so I'll just reach them and I won't need to follow you. No. In order to fulfill God's purpose, he had to, he had to be separated from them for a time. He had to choose to follow Jesus. And I'm just telling you. Whatever it is you fully obey, that is what you worship. And family is not 
a God you can give your life to and still follow Christ. So it keeps us from obeying God. Secondly, it steals our joy. Now tell me if you've ever heard this saying, a parent is someone who the day they become a parent, they will always be only as happy as their unhappiest child. Have you ever heard that one? I've heard that. I, I used to love that saying. I would say it, I would say it uh, often in church, especially on Mother's Day, next week's Mother's Day. Notice I'm not preaching this sermon next week because I value my life. But I would talk about, yeah, it's so hard being a parent because once you're a parent, man, your, your happiness is so yoked to the happiness of your children. And then I heard one of my favorite preachers mention that saying in a sermon, and he said, you know, that's not biblical. Say, nowhere in the Bible does it say that you have no right to be happy if your kids aren't happy. And in fact, it says the opposite. In Galatians 5, it's listing the fruit of the Spirit. What's the fruit of the Spirit? Well, if... Oh, you were starting to quote it. Good on you. Yeah. If, if you are a believer in Jesus, if Christ is in your life and His Holy Spirit, then these are the things that will be obvious. Not the things that should be obvious. They will be obvious. These are in you. And the second thing on the list is what? Y'all started, come on, joy. Joy is the second thing on the list. If Jesus is in you, you've got joy. You may not be opening that gift. That, that gift is in you, it may be unopened, but it's there. And it doesn't say, you've got joy in the Lord as long as your kids are making good grades and they're respectful and they're making good decisions. You've got joy as long as your spouse loves you and is meeting your needs. You've got joy as long as your, your parents are in good health and, and everything's fine between you. No. It says you've got joy. You've got joy no matter what. And that's hard for us to wrap our minds around. Because there's a lot of us who, who just think, I, I can't possibly have joy when my family's not right. And so let me just say this. If you're single and you can't possibly think you can ever be happy unless you get married someday, or if you're childless and you think, I, and until I have children, I'm not totally complete, or if you're married and you think, well, I can't be happy again until my marriage gets fixed, or if you have kids and you can't allow yourself to enjoy life if one of your kids is struggling, then those are all signs that you've made family your true God. Because you're letting your family dictate your joy, and that's not their place. And y'all don't get me wrong. Everything I just mentioned is legitimately sorrowful. It is a tragedy. And if you feel sadness, if you feel sorrow, if you want to weep over that, that's appropriate. If you want to stand before the Lord and cry out to Him with tears, Lord, fix this, that is good. If you want to go to life group every Sunday while you're struggling and say, this is what I'm struggling with, y'all pray for me. Absolutely. That is, that, is, that is part of following Christ. But you still have joy. You're still able to walk away and say, this part of my life isn't where I want it to be, but I'm so blessed. There's so many things I can rejoice in. That's the life God wants you to have. So let me put it another way. If right now you're trusting in your family to provide you with what only God can provide you with, to make you happy, to give your life fulfillment and joy, then you are setting yourself up for heartbreak and pain and devastation and despair. More than sorrow. Sorrow is, this is tough, but I'm going to make it through. Despair is, I don't think I can go on living. And that's what happens when family is your God. Because let's face it, there's going to be times, even if you marry the right person, and I'm speaking from per personal testimony, I married the rightest person there is, and yet, and yet they will disappoint you. 
Okay, she's not in the room, so don't tell her I said this, but sometimes she does not fulfill my expectations. And I dang sure don't fulfill all hers. There are times you love your kids, yes, but there are times they break your heart. They make foolish decisions. They get mad at you. Sometimes your kid may decide, I don't want you to be my mom or dad anymore. Sometimes they may run away from home and say, I'm done with you. What happens if, if everything's great between you and your kids? And I pray that that's the case. What, what happens on the day they move away from home? And it's like one day, it's you and them, and y'all do everything together, and your lives are just inextricably linked, and then all of a sudden, you're like, it's been weeks since she called. How could she do this to me? If that's your God, you're going to be devastated. You're going to have nothing. What happens when a loved one passes away? And that will happen. If it hasn't happened to you yet, it will. You will have nothing to fall back upon. This rock that you've, this foundation you've built your life on is crushed, is shattered, and your joy will be stolen. Folks, I need to tell you, Paul, the Apostle Paul, was a single man, and that was incredibly rare for a Jewish man of his age. He also was entirely celibate, and in the, the Greek cities where Paul ministered, that was just unheard of. And Paul writes all these letters. We have his thoughts on paper. And the great thing about Paul's letters, one of the great things, one of the many great things is he's very, very honest. And he tells us exactly what he's thinking. And he never once says, gosh, guys, I sure am lonely. I wish y'all would pray for me because I don't have a wife. I don't have kids. I'm just all alone out here on the road. I sure wish I had somebody. No, we get the impression Paul is one of the happiest people we've ever met. He's just full of joy, whether he's in prison or out in the open, whether he's, whether he's got a lot or a little. He's full of joy. He's, he's enjoying his freedom. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 7, you can look it up. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul calls his singleness a gift from God. He literally says, hey, if you Corinthian singles, if, if you decide to get married, go ahead. There's nothing wrong with it. But frankly, I wish you were more like me. I think I've got it better than you because I have this gift from God that I can stay single and childless and still be happy. Now, Paul, guys, Paul is not saying that because he's like, man, I'm glad I don't have some old lady around my house telling me to pick up my dirty underwear. No, the reason he's thankful to be single is he knows I can give my whole self to Christ this way. I don't have any of these these distractions. I don't have any other obligations. It's, It's just all me that I can hand over to him. And when he says, go pick up from this place where you've lived for three years and go somewhere else, I don't have to uproot my children from a place where they're rooted. When I'm going to some place that's dangerous, I don't have to think, well, I can't bring my family there because I don't want them to be killed. When I'm in prison and I don't know, and that happens a lot, and I don't know if they're going to kill me or set me free, I can, I can genuinely say, hey, chop off my head and I'll be with Jesus. Set me free and I'll be serving him again. Either way, I win. So if you are single or divorced or widowed, just hear me now. You are complete. You don't need a spouse to complete you. You are who you are in Christ and God looks at you and says, done. This, this, person is, this person is crafted by my hands to accomplish the purpose I put them on earth for. And you can do incredible things. You can do things I, as a married man, could never do. On the other hand, if you're married, no matter how healthy or unhealthy your marriage is, no matter how happy or unhappy your kids are, Christ offers you joy that the world cannot take away. And if you don't have it, Ask Him for it. 
Ask him to show you how to unwrap it because that is what you are destined to have unless you make something other than him your true God. So finally, number three. Idolatry of family keeps us from obeying God fully. It steals our joy, but it also crushes our family. This, is, this goes back to what I said at the beginning. You might think, okay, I'll trade my earthly joy for my family's good, but it's actually the other way around. If you put your family on the throne of your life, you're not blessing them, you're crushing them because they cannot bear those expectations. In Ephesians 6, 4, we've already talked about how Ephesians 5, Paul instructs husbands to love their wives and lay down their lives for them and wives submit to your husbands. And then the very next thing he talks about when it crosses over into chapter 6, he says, children, obey your parents. So Paul's just endorsing what the Old Testament says. And then he says in Ephesians 6, 4, fathers, and by fathers, he's talking to moms and dads. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, when he says, don't provoke your children to anger, he's not saying, don't ever make your kids angry. Moms, dads, can you agree with me that if you don't occasionally make your kids angry, you're not doing your job as a parent? Hey, man, that's the most amens I've ever gotten. Yeah, but, but what is he saying? I, I like, there's another translation that says, fathers, do not exasperate your children. What he's saying is, don't put a weight on your kids they can't bear. And that could include criticism, that, it, that could include overbearing discipline, that could include outright abuse, but it could also include unreasonable expectations. Don't exasperate your children. What it means is, don't make your children hate you. Isn't it interesting? He tells the kids, obey the parents, but he doesn't tell the parents, make sure your kids obey you. He says, don't, don't take away their spirit. Don't crush them. And that happens in spite of our best intentions. None of us tries to do this, right? None of us goes in saying, okay, here's this child. I'm going I'm to crush them. No, we don't say that. We love our kids, but we have these dreams for them. We picture how wonderful it will be to watch our little girl score the winning goal in the soccer match or to be chosen the prom queen. We want to see our, our little boy grow up to lead his team to a district championship or walk across the stage and shake the principal's hand as valedictorian. Or we imagine all the fun stuff that we'll do with them doing what we love, right? Whether it's hunting or fishing or golfing or reading or music. And then our kids come along and our kids are, they have the audacity to be their own individual person who isn't like us. And that's one of the hardest things for a parent you see qualities in your kid and you're like, out of all the things you took after me on, why that? All the things that I thought I was going to pass on to you, I didn't. And it's hard for us as parents because we have these dreams in our minds. And our little princess, it turns out, she doesn't want to wear ball gowns. She wants to wear blue jeans. Now, a little boy that we thought was going to be a little cowboy rodeo with us, well, he doesn't even like horses. And she may hang out with the kind of kids at school that you thought you were better than. And he may like bass guitars a lot more than baseballs. And if family is your idol, you're going to make them miserable and yourself because you're constantly going to be fighting with trying to cram them into the mold that you want them to fit. And you'll tell yourself, well, I'm doing it for her good. But if you're honest with yourself, isn't it really because you had an idea, this is what parenting is going to be like. I'm going to enjoy shaping this person into the person I wish I would have been at their age. And they won't fit into that mold. 
And, and you don't want to stand in front of your, your friends and your, and your relatives and, and say, yeah, um, yeah, he doesn't actually like football at all. He's more into uh, video games or he's more into science fiction movies. And, and you don't want to admit that because you want to look like the perfect parent. And you have to sacrifice that. Guys, let me talk to the kids here for a moment. I know most of our, we got 40 or 50 teenagers in the gym right now getting your tacos ready, uh, but some of them are going to listen to this later this week. So let me just speak to you. If you are a child living at home, um, don't you dare weaponize my words against your parents. Don't you dare go up to your mom or dad and say, hey, preacher says that you're too hard on me. If I get a phone call this week from a mother or father saying, so you're telling, your kid, you're telling my kids that they can be whoever they want to be and they don't have to listen to me, I will say, that's not what I said. Whatever grounding you're going to do to them, you go ahead, I'm on your side. Now, if you're a child, a teenager, and you want to sit down with your mom and dad and have a respectful conversation where you say, mom, dad, I love you, I owe you everything, but right now I just feel like I can't do anything to please you. That's an important conversation to have. That needs to be said if it's true. Your parents are not perfect, and they need lots of help, but they are doing their best. And someday if God gives you children, you're going to see how hard it is. All right, now back to us as parents. The only alternative, the only alternative is bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. That's what we are. Ultimately, as parents, our number one job is to train them in the art of following Jesus. So your son may not want to sit in the deer stand with you. Your daughter may not want to take piano. And yeah, I get that that's disappointing. But if God is your true God, ultimately that doesn't matter. What matters is your focus is come with me. Let's follow Jesus together. I'm going to confess to you all my problems and my, my failings. I'm going to show you that I'm not perfect, but I keep on getting up and following him when I mess up. And, and, and so let's, let's study the Bible together. Let's talk about what they talked about in life group this morning over lunch today. Let's, let's ask questions. Let's wrestle with some issues. Um, let's, let's raise some money so we can go on this mission trip together. Let's, let's pray for your friend whose dad just lost his job. Let's, let's Get our, our weed eater and our mower and go next door to the elderly neighbor's house and, and do their yard for them. Let's, let's serve Christ together. You want to love your family? You want to love them well? The number one, really the only way to do it right, is to love God with all your heart. Because look at what Jesus says in this last statement. He says, if you find your life, you'll lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake, you'll find it. I think what he's saying is that applies to a family is, if it's your whole goal to be the perfect family man, perfect family woman, you're going to destroy your family. Your kids are going to grow up going, oh, I got to get away from this house. But if on the other hand, your whole goal in life is, I want to love Jesus and I want to be the person he created me to be, he will craft you into the person your family needs you to be. I want you to notice as you read the Bible, it may surprise you if you've never done it before, I want you to notice there are no perfect families in this book. Not, not a single one. You look at the greatest heroes of Scripture, David, Moses, for goodness sakes, Jacob. You talk about family dysfunction. 
You talk about some bad decisions and some just freaky stuff going on. And that's even true of the family of Jesus. Jesus didn't come from a perfect family. You know that when Jesus in his early 30s went off to start his ministry, his own brothers didn't believe in him and they made fun of him? You know that at one point in his ministry, Jesus' mother and his brother showed up and tried to, tried to force Jesus to come home because they thought he'd lost his mind. And you can imagine how hard it would be to be Jesus' brother. You can imagine uh, living at home and, and, and all the time, all you ever hear is, why can't you be more like Jesus? And then Jesus grows up. And it's his job as the oldest son to take care of the mom. But instead, he goes off to be a wandering homeless preacher. And then you start to hear word from out in the open that, hey, the, the religious leaders of our country are saying he's possessed by a demon. They're saying he's a heretic. They're saying they're going to kill him. And so, yeah, there was some pressure there that Jesus faced. And Jesus loved his family. Make no mistake about it. One of the last things Jesus did as he was dying was look at his most trusted disciple and say, take care of my mom. He loved his family, but he did not idolize them. If Jesus had idolized his family, he never would have left home. He would have stayed in Nazareth his whole life. If Jesus had idolized his family, he never would have allowed himself to die at the age of around 33 when his mom still had many years left to live. He had to take care of her, right? If Jesus had idolized his family, we'd all be lost. But because Jesus did not idolize his family, he saved us and ultimately saved them too.